0: In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanksgiving for gathering us here this one last day for our con- the conclusion of our class on the New Testament. <clears throat> we ask you, Lord, to uh, continue to open our hearts and our minds to have a deeper and more uh, complete love for the Holy Scriptures. We pray. Uh, for all of those individuals this day that need prayers, we pray for our own Lenten journeys that we continue to strive to um, shed away the things that we need uh, taken out of our life. And we offer all of this up through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary as we say, Hail Mary, full of Christ. grace, Lord the Lord is with you. thee. And Blessed art Christ. thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, here we are. Last class of uh, well, last class with you and me. So, um we are going to jump into uh, Hebrews and the Catholic letters. Actually, should, should say Revelation too, and uh, Revelation. So, um, let's jump into it, and then at, at the break, I'll take attendance, and then um, and then from there, I'll uh, take any questions. So, yeah. uh, and also just to, just so you rem- uh, remember at break, I've got the. Uh, Quizzes that I've handed back, as well as your presentations and stuff from last week, they're all up here. So if you did not pick those up before, make sure you get those uh, sometime during the break. Okay, so let's jump into Hebrews. So, um, all right, so Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is a fascinating letter in the New Testament. 13 chapters in length. For 1,500 years, it was actually attributed to St. Paul. But now there are some scholars that aren't sure if it's St. Paul or not. Some scholars think it was written by a Hellenistic Jew Maybe a disciple of St. Paul. But it was somebody who was well versed in Greek thought and a master of the Old Testament. Possibly what people think, this is again scholars, the doctrinal content is Paul but the literary composition is an unnamed collaborator. Because what's different in Hebrews compared to the other letters is that the composition is different. It's, like a, it's written at a higher degree, uh, if, you, if that's a good way to say it. It's more scholarly than the other letters. So that's why there's this debate that goes back and forth. Did he, you know, So for 1,500 years, let's just say 1,500 years, everyone thought Paul wrote Hebrews. Now there's this, then there's this debate because it's different than the letters. And I think I had said this in the first class or the second class to you. I'm not... Me, personally, and the, and the men, that I've, men and women that I've studied under all believe it's St. Paul. Just because it's different literary, in a literary way doesn't mean he didn't write it. And the example I give is my own writing, is if you have a, like, my blog posts that I write are kind of to the masses. It's the people that, you know, maybe don't understand theology as well, but it's written kind of, you know, like the, the phrase we used to use, Joe Sixpack in the pew, okay, like the, the average person in the pew. But then there's times when I, if, if I haven't written one in a long time, but I can write a, a, an academic and scholastic paper if need be. You know, it's 25 pages in length, you know, using 30-something resources as well. So, if I can do that, I would imagine St. Paul would be able to do the same thing. So, as Catholics, like, and a lot of you guys, you know, in your forums, you, you're, you read Hahn and you read Bergsma, you read Brant Petrie and Michael Barber, these guys from the Augustine Institute, a lot of these guys, they, they, would, imag- they would say that St. Paul wrote it. The date is not exactly known. But it was sometime around 70 A.D. is a possible date. Because the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. So we know because in 70 A.D. is when the Romans came in and finally destroyed the temple. One of the uh, arches, I think it's the one one in Paris or... Maybe it's in Rome. I don't know. One of the one of those arches has a, it's it's it has a depiction of the Romans destroying the temple. The theme centers on Jesus Christ, but it focuses on him as the eternal High Priest. you guys need the lights out? Is it would be easier to see? Yeah. Oh, let's, oh, there we go. Is that better? Yeah, maybe that one. Yeah, that's probably that, better. Yeah, better. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I can still see my. Yeah, I can still see it. Yeah, it's okay. So uh, the theme, is, So the eternal high priest. So you know, it's the similar. Sent into the world to die for us, rise from the dead. You know, really it focuses on the Paschal mystery. But focusing on that particular element that Jesus is the eternal high priest. And obviously now our, our Lord reigns with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So that's one theme. Another one is that Jesus and the New Covenant are superior to the angels. And we see that in Hebrews 1-2, chapters 1-2. Jesus and the new covenant are superior to Moses. And that also Jesus is super, and the new covenant are superior to the Old Testament covenant from Sinai, so the Mosaic covenant. So, I'm a big fan of the Old Testament. Hebrews. I love the book, the Letter to the Hebrews, because it just how much of the Old Testament we get in the New Testament. Um, if you've never read through it all the way, <clears throat> I would suggest reading it because it is well worth the read. And then in uh, Hebrews five through five through ten, chapters five through ten. we see that Jesus is now superior to the Levitical high priest. So we see the Levitical high priests. So this one, again, whoever's writing this has a very, well, I would say St. Paul. St. Paul writing this as a Pharisee has a very good understanding of the Old Testament and has a very good understanding of also the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus is superior to the Levitical High Priest, and then Jesus' priesthood is better than the high priest, and that's we see that specifically in chapter seven so better better priesthood than the high priest so the high the, the Levitical priesthood are priests that serve us every day in our parishes they're That that priesthood from the Old Testament is now fulfilled with the priesthood that we have today, which Christ himself established with the apostles. So his priesthood is better. His covenant is better. We see that specifically in chapter 8. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. It's a fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And then it's a better sanctuary And sacrifice. His sacrifice is the one true sacrifice. So you get all those Old Testament sacrifices. They're no longer needed. That's why temple worship is done after... Once the temple was destroyed, they don't rebuild the temple. That temple sacrifice is all finished. And the big thing that we're going to see in Hebrews is also Melchizedek. So the summary focuses on attaining heaven. How do we get to heaven? How do we get to where Jesus Christ is? And then we also see that the gospel message, as we've seen this before in Paul's letters, is better. The gospel message now is addressed to all. It's not just for the Hebrews, not just for the Jews, but it's given to all men and women. As important as the Old Testament figures are, Jesus is more important than all of them. What was that, Omar? Okay, it's going to have to wait. Let me get through the summary now. Take a question. So, as important as those Old Testament figures are, you're looking at like Abraham, Moses, the angels. Jesus is more important than all of them. Now we see that Christ becomes the high priest. which was foreshadowed in back in Genesis 14 with the figure of Melchizedek. We're going to talk a little bit more about him shortly. So that Old Testament priesthood was temporary. Christ now establishes a new priesthood. Not only does he establish a ministerial priesthood, but there's also the priesthood of all the baptized. Because don't forget, when we are, when we are baptized, the Old Testament roles of priest, prophet, and king now are are given to us as well. So we're not ministerial priests, like our priests in the parishes, but we do offer up our own daily sacrifices. When we go to Mass, before Mass, we can pray for our own sacrifices and petitions that we offer up for Mass when we go to Mass. Christ has a new sanctuary and fulfills the sanctuary of the Old Covenant. So the old sanctuary was the temple, was temple worship. Now you've got a new form of worship in the the Eucharist, the idea of sacrifice, now, it's a diff- much different sacrifice, a more complete sacrifice, because it's Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. And that Old Testament covenant now can be done, or the New Testament covenant now can be done anywhere. Because that's what we see in the Gospels, where he says, you know, the woman at the well, where, remember, the, the Samaritans, they, they, were com- they had their own temple, they had their own kind of place of sacrifice, completely different than the temple In Jerusalem, because uh, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. And then, probably the most famous passage from all of, of Hebrews is in chapter 11, where we see examples of the heroes of the faith. So, even though Jesus is more important, we still got these great Old Testament heroes. You know, you got David, Moses, Abraham, Gideon, and others. David, Moses, Abraham, Gideon, these great heroes of the faith. What was her question? Um, What uh, what do you think about the discrepancies in the location of the incense altar, comparing Hebrews and Pentecost, whether inside or outside, the curtain of most holy place? Let me see it. Too, that's too detailed for me. Can you say the question? I just couldn't hear it. Hang on, I'll read it. So what do you think about the discrepancy in the location of the incense altar comparing Hebrews and Pentateuch, whether inside or outside the curtain of the most holy place? Yeah, it's, that's... I just don't have an answer for it. That's a that's a that's a real detailed question, which I'd have to do some research on it myself. So I apologize for not having the answer. Ask Father Will. That's her pastor up there. <laughs> ask Father Will. That's a good idea. Yeah, that would be a question. He, now he might, he might say the same thing. He might say, "Go ask a Bible scholar," because I don't know. <laughs> Ever email me that question, and I will uh, email John Bergsma because of him and I have been going back and forth about facial hair on Facebook. So <laughs> send me a picture. Him and I were both on newadvent.org recently right next to each other, and I screen- took a screenshot and I put it on Facebook, and I tagged him in it. And he's like, this I said it's kind of cool when we're on Facebook we're on newadvent.org together in our pictures. And he's like, Yeah, but you have a much better facial hair, you, you have much better facial hair than I do, because he has none. And Michael Barber and Brant Petrie both have facial hair, and he's like the trifecta on the sacred page. So there's the three of them that are on the sacred page together. That's a that's a website if you haven't been haven't been to it. Focus obviously on the scriptures. And so Michael Barber, Brant Petrie, and John Bergsma. But those, the other two ha- only have facial hair. And I said, man, you're the only one out of the trifecta that doesn't have facial hair. I'm like, you need to grow it. And he's like, no. Nah. He goes, if I grow it, it's way too light and it doesn't look good. So, uh, so yeah, shoot me, that, shoot me that. Send me an email and I'll ask, I'll ask Bergma personally. Okay, so the theology, we've got multiple we got multiple um, ideas of the theology. So, so the one, one of the aspects of the theology is Christology, which I think you guys are going to get into more next class, which is actually the study of the person of Christ, both his divine and human natures. And so in Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus Christ redeemed mankind so he, he is now the primary mediator. So where, you know, David and Moses and Abraham, uh, Noah, Adam, were all mediators of their own covenants. Well, now Christ is the mediator in the new covenant. And he, he, his sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of his blood is now redemption For all of humanity. What makes Jesus even more unique is that he is the one, he's the perfect victim, he's the lamb, but he's also the true high priest. And he's better, this sacrifice that he does is better than all the Old Testament sacrifices. Man couldn't redeem, we couldn't redeem ourselves on our own. We needed God to do it for us. So back in Genesis 3:15, in the proto-evangelium, which was the first gospel, the, the, you know, moments after the disaster happens with Adam and Eve, God promises us a Savior. And this is this is Christ. And the core of the letter happens in chapter 8, verse 1. So chapter 8, verse 1. So look that up. But this is what it says. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So again, Christ is both victim and now high priest. It's one of the reasons why we, we also talk about Mary as the Ark of the Covenant or the new Ark of the Covenant. Because if you remember the Ark, the, the whiteboard's on here, the Ark of the Covenant, have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay? You know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. All right? Big, like the little box, the gold box, the angels, okay? Well, what they put in the, in the Ark... The original ark were the Ten Commandments and the manna from the desert. So it was the word of God and it was the bread that came down from heaven. But they also put the staff, Mos- uh, Aaron's staff that budded. The staff was the was the representation of the high priest, the one who had the, the big like kind of like the way our popes ha- the popes now have the staffs. Okay, bishops have have staffs. Okay, um, just like that, so Christ is now so as Mary is the new, the new Ark of the Covenant, Jesus is the bread came down from heaven, He's the Word of God in the flesh, but He's also the High Priest as well. So that's why we see her as the new Ark of the Covenant. So again, He's both perfect victim and true high priest. Another the, another part of the theology is Judaism and Christianity. And it's a central idea of the letter. And we've talked about this already, but it, all this means, all this, the central idea is that the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, was incapable of of saving mankind from Adam's sin, incapable. There was no way that it was going to save us. The old law is transitional in nature and very temporary. There's, yeah. I mean, you just think about it. You look at the old. You look at the Old Testament sacrifices. You look at the Mosaic law, and then we look at the new. The new covenant. And really what Christ did is... So this is Pauline thought. This is, this is kind of thought from, from the idea of Paul. That Christ has now abolished it and replaced it with the law of the gospel. So that's, you know, you get into all, all those ideas of the, the, that the same idea. We talked about Moses, you know, sitting and teaching. Now Jesus is also sitting and teaching as well. Matthew's idea, you know, all the, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount all that idea, all of that the same thing that Moses does, Jesus is doing it, but he's doing it better I'll give you another one too because it's something we just, made a few months ago the Solomonic gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that the, that the Magi bring to Jesus um, Solomon has brought those, well he's brought, not myrrh but gold and frankincense He's brought those gifts. What that means, what Jesus receiving those as a child, is that it's saying that Jesus as a child is greater than the man that Solomon was. As a baby, as a two-year-old baby, Jesus is greater, or a toddler, two-year-old toddler, than Solomon is as a man. Another idea of, in the theology is that faith and, it's faith and revelation. So what that means is that the letter to the Hebrews is a word of exhortation. The letter of the Hebrews is a word of exhortation to persevere in the faith. Don't get discouraged. Don't fear persecution. Don't fear suffering. We have to persevere in the faith. and revelation doesn't necess- isn't talking about the book of revelation it's what's being revealed to us and jesus is the fullest revelation of the father there's nothing more fuller re- who- than christ revealing us revealing himself and revealing god the father at the same time You know, we talk about different things being revealed to us in the Scriptures. We hear that also in the Gospels. You know, if you know me, you know the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Christ is the fullest extension. And then another part of the theology is eschatology. I've got that on the board for you. The entire letter is rooted in this idea of eschatology or the spirit of eschatology. And eschatology is usually the, the study of the, of the last things. Because in the letter we see Judaism, but then we also see Christianity And how Judaism prepares us for Christianity. And then Christianity has two dimensions. It begins here on earth, but we'll find its true fulfillment only in heaven. The two dimensions of Christianity. And the sacred writer of Hebrews speaks frequently of the second coming of Jesus. I, th- I think I had mentioned it to you already in one of the classes. A good book on eschatology is written by I couldn't think of his name in one of the classes. Doctor Regis Martin, one of my grad one of my grad professors at Franciscan. He's got a he's got a couple he's got a book on death. And then he's got a book on eschatology. I think I told you guys that funny story. He, he told us, after reading the book on death, you'll want to die. Which, that's just, that's Regis Martin's humor. But, but he sounds like this. Yeah. When you, you read my book, you'll want to die. That's, that's, that's Regis, that's, that's what Regis Martin said. We used to do imitations, impressions on the... Uh, Watching uh, the intramural football on the sidelines. We used to always try to do our, Regis Martins. I, I fell into a hole, a pit, a cavern, a great chasm. Okay. So, and then the last part of the theology is the Christian's present life. Do so you see this, this? This is packed for 13 chapters. This letter is packed full of information packed full of, of great themes for us so the last part of the theology is the Christian's present life and it's similar it focuses again on the eschatology that our life here on earth is kind of this pilgrimage towards our heavenly home that this is not our this is not our permanent home in, in our heavenly home, we'll have a rest in God, where we will permanently, eternally, but permanent, eternally rest in God. Although there'll be obstacles, sufferings, things will be present, the pilgrim, the Christian pilgrim, needs to focus on faith and on hope. So our our you know, Saint Augustine taught you know it's like that restlessness. We we all have that restlessness. Well in heaven that restlessness will not exist. And then I just wanna hit a couple points in in uh, Hebrews. And then we'll move into James. So Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, 1-3. It's a prologue. So it's a prologue, an introduction to the letter that's very similar to the Gospel of St. John. And again... We see this, we see, because John, John was reflected on, John's first uh, chapter reflects the openings that we see in Genesis. And there's no, there's no accident that Hebrews is also doing the same thing. Uh, so we see a very similar prologue explaining its different perspectives, that Christ is exalted. Similar to what we've been talking about. God's own eternal son. He's the mediator, universal mediator. And again, he focuses, you know, it's the, he's the high priest, but he's also now, he's the eternal high priest. Because he, he takes that high priest role into heaven with him. And it's not just through the prophets that we know God, but it's also now through God himself, who is obviously Jesus Christ Jesus Christ. Now this figure of Melchizedek is so interesting. Um, Hebrews 5 through seven, again, if you never if you, you didn't get a chance, you haven't read through it. Um, maybe over the next couple nights, over the next week or so, or you know, maybe read it um, before you go to bed at night or when you wake up in the morning. But this idea of Jesus as the great high priest in chapter five, and then um, and then the certainty of God's promise, and then the priestly order of Melchizedek. So, Melchizedek, Melchi... So the first part of his name, M-E-L-C-H-I, Malki, it stands for my king, and Zedek, Z-E-D-E-K, is of righteousness. So it's my king of righteousness. Now, in Genesis, we see that he is the king of (coughs) Solomon. Solemn means peace. Now, if you remember, in Genesis 22, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And it would be the mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord will be provided by God. The term Jeru, G-E-R-U, means provided. So you put all of this together. The peaceful place where God provides is known as Jerusalem. So the place where Melchizedek offers up the sacrifice for Abraham with the, after defeating the kings is on Mount Moriah, the same place that they built the temple. The original, well, I mean the second temple too, but the original temple was built on, in the Mount Moriah range. And Calvary, where our Lord is crucified, was one of the peaks on the Mount Moriah range. So the same place where Abraham offers up Isaac, where Melchizedek then offers up sacrifice, where the temple is then built, and then where Christ himself is crucified, is all takes place right on these, these, the same mountain range. Now, Melchizedek did not have a Levitical genealogy. This is before the Levitical priests existed. He does not have a Levitical motherhood or fatherhood. So again, he's not from the tribe of Levi because the tribe of Levi had not been established yet. So his priesthood is actually a natural priesthood being that he was the firstborn son. That's why being a firstborn son in the Old Testament is so important. Because the, I, the idea of the priesthood would lie... That's why you go back to Moses, like with the, with the Israelites when they leave, when they leave Egypt, when they make that covenant with God they were destined to be priests the men the men of the of the leaving would, would have been destined to be priests but because then they built the golden calf they failed they fall the priesthood is then taken away from them but the only people that were the, the people that were um, loyal were the were the were Aaron's sons from the tribe of Levi and then that's where Moses establishes them as the new priests but everybody, it was a priesthood. They all would have been priests. All the tribes would have been priests. But the idea of the firstborn is very important. That's why we, so, we, we people will call us out on it. you get Protestants that will call us out on it and say, well, you know, it's in reference to Jesus as the firstborn son. Well, it doesn't mean that he was, there's a second or thirdborn, but the firstborn was, was an important role in the family. You know, the firstborn would have also received the father's uh, uh, wealth, any of the wealth, any of the the land. So the firstborn is very important. Um, And there's a whole... I mean, if you look up Bergsma and Barber and all those guys, they probably have articles upon articles and stuff on the firstborn because there's a whole lot of theology behind the idea of the firstborn son. Now, many people believe, including the Jews... That Melchizedek was Shem, the firstborn son of Noah. So, just like Adam is priest, because Adam is a firstborn son, so now Melchizedek becomes a priest because he's a firstborn son. So, the Jews believed that Shem, so Shem, you know, Noah had his three sons, Shem being the oldest, was years later. Became the king of righteousness. Now, this doesn't. This is. We see this too with David. Um, if you've ever uh, tried to think, of a father. I think it's probably a father who keeps his promises. It's one of like the subcategories within the Davidic covenant. David inherits all of this. He uh, David essentially inherits the priesthood legally. But not biologically. So if you remember from the Old Testament, Saul, the first king, was not permitted to offer up sacrifice. The, 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 the prophets got on him for trying to offer up sacrifice. But then David, the second king, he's He's allowed to offer up sacrifice. He actually wears a priestly the epoch, the priestly garment, almost like you know what our priests wear today. He wears that, and there's the there's the question. Well, how does David? Why is David permitted to wear that? And so was it? Well, when David becomes king of Jerusalem, which is the same place that Melchizedek was king of, he inherits that priestly. Um duty legally from Melchizedek, and then is able to offer up sacrifice where Saul was not. So David really fills in, in, in a sense, he becomes priest propheting. He's king, he's also a priest, but he's also prophetic. Thing of the Psalms, okay, the speaking the word of God. He's priest because he's able to offer up sacrifice. You know, he dances in front of the Ark of the Covenant as they bring the ark into Jerusalem. Okay, and then offers up sacrifice, and, he, then, and he's obviously the king of Jerusalem. So then, who is the new David? Jesus then becomes the new David, um, and he is the new David. So this idea of the priesthood then continues to extend from David. Now Christ becomes the ultimate priest, the ultimate high priest, and then fulfills all of the Levitical... You know all of the Levitical duties there's so much on this that we could spend you spend a whole class on all of this just alone. I mean' just going through it. um It's very, very interesting, but that idea that David becomes the king or a priest through through Melchizedek uh, and um is important, okay. And then the last point I want to show in Hebrews is then, we talked about this a little bit already, uh, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. i got to like, calm myself down, because if I start talking about that I, that, that, I love that stuff about David's priesthood. It's just the coolest thing in the world. I, I'll, I'll lose my mind. So, um, so again, Hebrews 8, ch- chapters 8, 1 through 6, is a key argument of the letter. And it shows the superiority of Christ's priesthood. That his priesthood is superior than all the, priest, the priesthood of the Old Testament. See, in chapter 8, actually quotes Jeremiah. Verse 8 in Jeremiah, or excuse me, verse 8 in chapter 8, So like verse, I can't say, I see it in the light, verse 5, uh, for when Moses was about to erect the temple, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. No, it's all right, if you leave it, I, I can read, yeah. Uh, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is as more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it, since it is enacted on better promises. And then, in, so that's what we've been talking about. So Jesus becomes not only the new victim and the perfect sacrifice, he's also the new tent and the new sanctuary. Christ himself becomes the temple. The, and then... Um, and again, the whiteboard's not here. But if you think about the temple, how Christ is the, a new sanctuary. He becomes the temple itse- himself. Christ on the altar when he's crucified, when he is struck on the side, we, blood and water come out. We believe that to be uh, symbols of both baptism and Eucharist. It's hard for me to do it without the whiteboard, but the temple had multiple sections to it. Okay, so you had a section kind of for the Gentiles, then you had a section for the men, or for women and then men, and then kind of a whole section where the Levitical priests would then, where they would offer up sacrifice. In that section was where the lambs would be brought, and then they would be sacrificed. Okay? So you have all this blood from the lamb in this area of the sanctuary. While the way that they would get that out, I think this is all in... If some of you have probably read this in Petrie and Hahn. How they would get that out is that they would flush it out, out the side of the temple with water. So, literally, coming out, like out of the side of Christ, becomes his, well, now his bride, the church, blood and water with baptism and Eucharist. But in the, in the temple, they would flush it out with water and it would go into the Gihon River and you'd have the blood in the water flushing out the side of the temple itself. So, the same way. Yeah, again, it, uh, I'm trying, Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, I think, explains all of this. Maybe a little bit, of a Father, who keeps his promises, but that's the so Christ is now has established this new temple um, because he himself becomes the temple, and you know, and it's and then obviously he himself is you know he, he and the church are are one, although even though the church is also the the bride uh, to the bridegroom. Okay, that's. I mean, Hebrews, again, we could spend, you could spend probably two, three weeks in Hebrews alone, just there's so much in there. Uh, but again, read it on your own. Um, if, you get it, if you have questions, you want to ask me questions, feel free to shoot me a question, because then I can obviously go to those those guys that like things specific. But um, but that will give you, if you read it, what I just went over with you, will give you kind of a basis to to read it. All right, let's focus on on James so James is five chapters in length these are all going to kind of go we'll kind of start jetting through these pretty quickly five chapters in length the long Catholic tradition is that the author is the brother of the Lord which means he was like a cousin or relative of Jesus And he was a big pillar in the church in Jerusalem. This is the other James. Because John, St. John, has a brother named James. This is the other James. It, is this where Protestants think that Jesus has an actual brother? Yeah, because that's the... Well, even in the Gospels where he talks about my brothers and spite my brothers and sisters, you know, who's my mother, who's my brothers. There's there's no term in Hebrew for those for that term brother. So like we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're not biologically related. All of us in here. The idea that there's so everyone was like a cousin or a, some type of kin or relative like, there's not even words for like nephew and like, like even nephew because like in the Old Testament, Abraham's Abraham's nephew is Lot, but he calls him my brother. But even but biologically it was his nephew, so there's no term for those. So that's what people get. That's why read. That's why it's so important to read the scriptures, or have or at least have people that have. Learn the scriptures in the original languages, because we get people. You know, that's what. So Protestants will say, "Oh, he he had brothers and sisters." Well, if he had brothers and sisters, John would have not taken care of him at the at the foot of the cross. Mary would have been given to one of the other siblings. That's a big note. You know, that's kind of a big thing in in the in the Hebrew culture was that they took care. Obviously, they took care of their own. Um, But it's something where. The idea that, yeah, brother... So those terms don't necessarily exist. It's like a, it's like a kin person. Kins, does that make sense? So not the brother of St. John, but the son of Zebedee, or, or the son of Zebedee, uh, and he was martyred. So that St. That John was martyred in 42 AD. So St. John's brother. So there's the James that is in Jerusalem, which is what the, this letter is, and then there was James the Greater, that ended up going all the way to making it probably to Spain, actually, is where the, you know, the, the way of, um, the, yeah, the, the, the Camino. That's the way of St. James. That's James the Greater. This is the other James. And I saw Bishop Wall last night, who, he was, in our, he was at our parish for a Lenten parish mission, and we were talking about names afterwards because we're pregnant, and he's like, well, James is a good name for a baby. He's like, the, our Lord chose two of them. So, because his name is, because Bishop Wall is James, is James Wall. So, uh, he's the Diocese of Gallup Bishop and a, a priest of Phoenix for many years. Uh, so, James was written around 57 A.D., but the exact date is not completely known. And James, the author, died around 62 A.D. The theme of this is that the true and wise Christian is the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, and then puts his faith in Christ into practice. So, a true and wise Christian is one who has faith in Jesus Christ and puts his faith puts his faith into practice by living a alike you guys could hit the lights again too if you want that one no go 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 down there we go yeah don't worry about put, I can read with this with this light here next to me so so this is now where we get faith in works where we get that Amongst Protestants and Catholics. So, faith without works is dead. The works here, what works is meant by, are not external rights, but it's about keeping the commandments and living the Beatitudes. So everybody, you know, works is like they take it as like external works, things that we do. But really, the term works is in in relation to keeping the commandments and living the beatitudes, which remember are are the beatitudes are a fulfillment of the ten commandments. Even though we still focus very heavily on the ten commandments, the beatitudes. Also, our fulfillment of the of the, uh, the of the the command the beatitudes are fulfillment of the commandments. The beatitudes are, are works of love, so that's what when you talk about works in here, you're talking about keeping the commandments and living the beatitudes. A great thing I heard once. T- I read some t- somewhere might have been in, who knows? I forget whose writings it was. But the Beatitudes are like the characteristics of the, uh, the Christian within the kingdom of God. It's kind of like our, our duties. It's not like you pick and choose what Beatitude you're going to follow. But we, thought we need to follow them all. So the summary is not very clear. It's not a clear outline, this book. There's a lot of moral exhortations. But he moves kind of going back and forth from one point to another. Now, it's interesting who it's addressed to. It's addressed to the 12 tribes that are in dispersion. The 12 tribes that are in dispersion. So those are the Christians who are in the new Israel who are also dispersed amongst the Mediterranean world. So remember remember we talked about, um, I think I mentioned in the first class to you, there's like diaspora Judaism during the time of Christ. Jews that were Not living in Israel, but we're we're living in the Mediterranean world. This is now to the Christians living in the new Israel, living in the new covenant. We're now dispersed also amongst the Mediterranean world. And then the big famous passage that we see in James is obviously the whole idea of faith and works. On page four forty three of your study Bibles, there's a great explanation of of faith and works, and I would encourage you to read that because that's one of those points of contingency that you know that come up with uh, with Protestants as well. We had a couple. We had a couple become. They were. Well, they were technically Anglican, but then they were pro- then they were like involved in. I'm trying to think some kind of non-denominational for many years, and so they were very well equipped. So putting them through RCIA would have been kind of a waste because they really they really had a great understanding of the Catholic faith. So myself, this goes back five years ago. Myself, Father Will and Father Chris at the time when he was parochial vicar at the parish. Uh, we sat down with them and this was one of the things that they didn't have a clear understanding of was the idea of faith and works so i sat down with them father will sat down with them and then probably after about 6 months uh eh, 6 months probably about 4 or 5 months of one on one with this couple we ended up welcoming them into the church but this was one of the elements so that's the way it's explained in there is 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 very clear The theme of James is, again, mostly moral conduct. And then the other cool thing that we see in James is also anointing of the sick. And that's actually chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. And that's essentially what we know as anointing of the sick. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone? Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up and if he has uh, committed sins, will be forgiven. So one of the things that we see uh, a doctrinal point in James is the sacrament of anointing of the sick taking taking hold because that 's essentially now anointing of the sick is is um, it 's not just last rites um it 's stuff that you know if you 're going in for surgery um, if you 've got some type of very you know a, a, a sickness you 're diagnosed with something. Um, Anointing of the sick is there uh, for that purpose uh, in today's church. All right, let's jump into the Peters. There's one Peter, but three le- multiple letters. So, Peter, one Peter, written by St. Peter sometime in Rome around 64 AD. It's short. It's five chapters. These letters are they're much shorter than, than some of Paul's letters. So the, the primary theme is that Christians through faith and baptism now share in the salvation provided by Jesus Christ. The summary is similar to the letter of St. James, but more doctrinal. Where James was a lot of moral exhortations with some doctrine, this first letter is focusing on more doctrine. It's not written to any specific audience. Although Peter's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, he doesn't say who they are, if it's Jewish or Gentile. It's probably a combination of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. So like, you know, Greeks and... or like someone that was a pagan wasn't Jewish, and then Jewish Christians. So this must have been a captivity. Was he in captivity? At the yeah, more than likely, or was, or was just about ready to be cap- captured. So he would have needed somebody to get these letters out? Correct. Yeah. You know, does he write, uh, he's a fisherman, uh, they don't have public how is he able to write these letters well he's inspired by the holy spirit but he also has john mark who's his translator saint mark the gospel writer was his translator so he's probably writing these down for him doesn't mean doesn't mean he's a fisherman he has no education or maybe a like a uh, a, in a specific education but our you know P- st peter has been, as the first pope, he's been given certain gifts from the Holy Spirit. Um, but again, a lot of these letters aren't written by themselves personally. They're written by, he might be present. he's more than likely what Peter's doing, he's presenting the ideas. He's presenting the ideas, and Mark is the one that's writing it. Writing it. I will, yeah again, I don't think you think some of these guys i think we think oh they were dumb, they were fishermen, they were uh, you know you, not, you, you can't be that dumb to be a fisherman okay it's just not, it' doesn't 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 i mean that's the the, the the i think that's the assumption that we make oh they were fishermen, they didn't have a formal education but but again they yeah and I've read that too, where there's a possibility that Peter was more educated than, than we think he was so but again, remember there. Remember that's the other thing. Paul, even with Paul, you've got somebody. With Hebrews, you could say that too. Was it Paul's writings? Was it Paul's words? Yeah, but could someone else be writing? The literary style of it was different than than his let, than his original letters, and they and, it, and they also didn't have just one. Person, you know, one secretary. They might have had multiple sec- might have been multiple secretaries at, at first as well. I mean, think about the importance. If you were a good writer, you'd want to go and be with Paul. You'd want to maybe you know be able to say, hey, you know, I'll write your I'll write your words down. Um. So the main theological point is that we see that. Uh, Christians all over the world have been now redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament, or has fulfilled the Old Testament. And then St. Peter says that we should seek holiness and virtues. Seek holiness, seek virtues, seek virtues, resist temptation, We will suffer. There is going to be suffering in life. But, in lo- but stay in union with Christ. So I'm going to finish up with uh, I'll do Second Peter with you, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and do John, the three Johns, Jude, and Revelation. We'll, we'll, we if we take a shorter break, we'll, I'll have you guys out in a much shorter time today, and then also there's uh, valuations uh, that we need to finish at the end. All right, so Second Peter is three chapters. Again, written by Peter, although some think it was not written by him because of the date. Now, Origen, which is one of the early church fathers, and scholars since the third century attribute this letter to St. Peter. There's no specific indication date when it was written. And then there's also the idea it was maybe written shortly before 70 AD, but then that, that was it written by Peter at this point? But again, there was no indication when it was written. The theme focuses on the parousia or the, the second coming of Christ. So it focuses on the second coming, which even though now seems to be delayed. Remember, because the early Christians, Jesus said I would return, I think they thought he'd be coming back. You know, I had a professor in my undergrad, that said the, the early Christians like would do this throughout the day. Like looking, waiting for Jesus to like staring, staring at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back. So, and then the secondary theme would be the the, refu- the uh, refuting of false teachers and their errors about Christ and the second coming. So that's why we start to see the church start to write down things, especially with the Gospels because Christ isn't not Christ isn't coming back so let's we need to write down about we need to write down and talk about the life of Christ because he's he's not he's not coming back as quickly as we thought Yeah, we yeah, in we've talked yeah, yeah, we talked about it yeah, 2 weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm sorry just really elaborate on that again or, or you want to... Well, he just says that there's certain writings of Paul that are obscure. And he's probably talking about some of the, he's, and and scholars believe it's stuff, stuff in in Romans, in early Romans yeah a lot yeah some a lot of a lot of those points where where because they are, there's an obscurity, you know I think Peter didn't fully understand them himself at times, and he says they were obscure. now this this is not this looks like a letter, but it's better categorized as a homily. Because it's, it's so, again, it looks like a letter, but more can be, can, it actually could be categorized better as a homily. It's intended for all Christians, including us, rather than just one small group. So instead of one particular audience like Corinthians, Ephesians, he's writing this, this letter's written to all people for all times. You know, chapter 2, he talks about like the idea of, of false prophets, what false prophets will face. And what's interesting, he says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of depths, darkness to be kept until the judgment. I mean, it was the idea that false prophets are going uh, to are are come up, but also the angels when they sinned, God punished them as well. In this letter we see Christology, so again, the study of the person of Christ. It's a well-developed Christology. And we, are, we become partakers of the divine nature. We share in the sonship of Jesus Christ. And then the main theological point is that the parousia, the second coming, it will come, but it might be delayed. And that our eyes should always be focused on Christ coming back and Christ's return. All right, so we will stop there for now.